Hey guys, welcome back to Big Girls Don't Crime. This is Kate and Sophie here about to take you through episode two. So we made it through the first and we are back and ready for more. By the time people listen to this, it'll be like a week since Purvis Pain has come out. But um, on TikTok now, I'm seeing so many things about Purvis Pain. Like it's all over my For You page. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you think it's like because of us? Probably. No, I'm thinking. No way. Do you think <laughs> that the TikTok algorithm read our minds and knew that we were going to eventually talk about this? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Nice. I'll take it. So... Yeah. Um, any updates with that case that you have? No, right no updates right now. But mm. we'll definitely do like an update episode when. Yeah, we have and an everyone update. make sure you go and sign that petition if you mm-hmm. haven't already. In the Instagram bio link. Alrighty. So, Kate, you want to tell us what we're talking about today? So, today we're going to be covering three cases of murdered Indigenous women in Canada. And we're covering three t- cases today because. At no surprise to anyone, the news has hardly covered these cases, so there's not much information. Um, With all of these cases, there was hardly any information, except the last one had a little bit more than the other, the first two. Um, So today we're going to be talking about the murders of Tiffany Marine Sky, Rose Ann Blacknid, and Annie Putukuk. Sorry if I'm pronouncing these wrong, but okay. Do you want to start us off or you want me to start? Sure. Here we go. So we're going to start off with the case of Tiffany Maureen Skye. Tiffany was a 19-year-old member of the Blood Vein First Nation in Manitoba. And again, if I'm mispronouncing these, I'm really sorry. She was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba on May 8, 1992 to Josephine Skye and Morris Bushy. Bushy? Bushy? Bushy. Bushy. We're going to go with Morris Bushy. Yeah, I think so too. Her family consisted, consists of her bio parents, her three sisters, two brothers, three stepbrothers, and her two foster parents. That is a big mm-hmm. family. So she, oh yeah, so um, she grew up in foster care from an infant to her mid-teenage years. And was she friends with, or not friends, but did she know her family, her parents I at all think so. when she was growing up? I think so. I mean, it doesn't okay. really say, but I, I, I'm guessing. Assumed Yeah. Okay. Her nickname to those close to her was Olive. That's so cute. I know. Her dream was to become a social worker. Wow. So Kate is becoming a social worker. So that's kind of crazy. Um, Identifying with her. She disappeared on August 8th, 2011. We have hardly any information on her whereabouts or what she was doing that day. And the police have said that she was probably in the Forks area or downtown Winnipeg in the afternoon slash early evening, which is an extremely vague description. So that's probably going to be troubling later on. (laughs) At 2.30 p.m. on August 13, 2011, Selkirk RCMP, which stands for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, was alerted to a body in the Red River. Oh, wow. So that's five days after she goes missing. Mm -hmm. The exact location was St. Andrew's Lock and Dam in Lockport, Manitoba, which is 20 kilometers. And for those of us in the U.S., that's about 12 miles north of Winnipeg. Actually, we use kilometers here, too, but I don't know anything about kilometers. So let's stick with miles. We use kilometers here? Wait. No, we don't. Do we? No, we don't. Cut that out. Sorry. (laughs) 
I was thinking, <laughs> what is a marathon in? <laughs> a marathon's in miles. No. What? Don't. It's like. Tw- yeah. Uh-huh. Oh. Oh, a 5K is what you're talking about? Yes. That's what I'm thinking. Okay, but I think we only use them in like running terms. I don't think we like actually are like, oh, I'm 12 okay. kilometers well, away. Fine. If you were to run from Manitoba to Winnipeg and St. Andrew's Lock and Dam, that would be a 20K. Okay. <laughs> the exact location was St. Andrew's Lock and Dam in Lockport, Manitoba, which is 20. 20- Why do you remember? Because I'm, okay, I'm assuming that we're going to cut that out. Never mind. Fuck my life. Okay. Whatever. Anyways. Kate, shut up. <laughs> I'm moving on. Her body was 12 miles north of Winnipeg. Okay? <laughs> I'm not good at this. Okay. Moving forward. Okay, go. The police waited... 10 days after the body was found to finally release the identity to the press. Is that a long time? What's the normal window for that? I feel like it is a pretty long time because if it's like a homicide, which you would assume it is, wouldn't you want to release it soon enough so people could call in with tips? Yeah, and also probably come identify the body. Don't you need like a next of kin or... No, because I... No, 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 because... No, because I think the next of kin already identified it. So, like, they identified it, but it took oh, the police, oh, like, 10 days oh, to release that information. Okay. Yeah. Which is, like, if it's a homicide, you fucking need, like, you need yeah. to do it quick. You know what I mean? Like, you need to figure out the whereabouts quickly. But okay. Yeah, so they waited 10 days until after the body was found to release the identity. However, they didn't give her a name until five days after she was buried. And when they did, they released the information on her last known whereabouts, which are offensively broad, as we had mentioned before. Kate, do you want to continue, take off from there? Yep. Okay, so very little information has been publicly shared, and there has obviously been very little media coverage. I found probably, I think, like maybe three articles about it, which is ridiculous. But so the police didn't release a cause of death because there's reports that it couldn't be determined. However, her death, they say, does appear to be criminal in nature. Um, in 2016, her case was added to cases being investigated by Project Devote, or Devote, I don't know, which is a combined task force of the Winnipeg Police Service and the RMCP, and it was created in 2012. And so it's mainly like the devotee or whatever is mainly tasked to investigate unsolved homicides and missing persons cases, but it mainly focuses on missing and murdered indigenous people. Tiffany's mother told the Winnipeg son that quote, one of her other daughters got a text message from Tiffany the night she went missing that she was out with her quote bros. So somehow the RCMP know the exact hour she texted her sister And her sister received this text, oh my fucking God, text (laughs) message, but they can't determine the exact location that the message was sent from, which I think is a load of bullshit, but who knows? Okay, so I found this blog. So like, that's like the information I got from like these actual like credible news sources. But then I found this blog and obviously I don't know how accurate it is, but like just thought I would add the information in there. Because it might be helpful and true. And if it's not, then just forget I said anything. So, yeah. 
So apparently two years before her disappearance, Tiffany, Tiffany was a member of Bebo, Bebo, which is apparently a social networking website with that was popular with Winnipeg gang, Winnipeg gang members. Okay, I think I should read this. Yeah, wait, wait, wait. Let me let me finish this one thing and then you start. Okay, so it was a social media networking site, but now it's a company that makes social apps. So it like isn't a networking site anymore. Oh, interesting. I guess. Okay. Uh, her profile title, which I very much identify with, <laughs> is quote "fuck a bitch" end quote. So that I mean, girl knows. <laughs> Her personal information read, quote, I heart Northside, end quote, which is a, quote, violent aboriginal street gang in Winnipeg, end quote. Her brother, Isaac Sky, also known as Isaac Sky Young, was 36 in 2010 when Tiffany last posted in Bebo. He had a Bebo account which read, quote, black and red and white, all the IP colors, end quote. He wrote about NSIP, which is Northside Indian Posse. Tiffany was cousins with Nathan Starr, who is a 14-year-old who was killed in a fire on Mountain Avenue in 2007, set ablaze by two members of the Indian Posse, a street gang. Oh, so is that the Northside Indian Posse is the same thing as the Indian Posse? I think so. So there's some gang rivalry maybe underlying this case? Okay, so her cousin had died in gang violence, and they ended up lighting, oh, no, they ended up lighting the wrong house on fire. Yeah. Wow. That's awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The blog said, quote, they are heavily connected to the thug life underworld of aboriginal street gangs, which brings with it heavy drug usage and random violence, end quote. And then there's another quote. Quote, the police and the families of these girls do their best to hide this side of the story, and by doing so, they obscure the probable answers to the disappearances, end quote. Okay, well, I feel like I would probably also obscure a little bit of the facts and try to, like, undermine some of these components if my, like, the just that description is almost like, I don't even know how to explain this. Well, what I was going to say is, like, I mean, obviously we don't know about the police in Canada, but the police in America, like, if they find out that the the victim of a crime was involved in gangs, sex worker, something like that, they usually don't take the case as seriously as they would if it was, like, quote, an all-American girl. Yeah. Because they're like, oh, like, they put themselves in that danger. Yeah. And it's almost like she was asking for it type of deal. And that, I mean, that, that whole, like... I just that description pisses me off because it's exactly what you're saying it like almost undermines their humanity it's exactly like well we shouldn't be so hyper focused because they were thugs of the underworld of aboriginal street gangs yeah it's just like such a I don't know convoluted way of looking at it and at first I thought this like blog was going to be like super like good and like like I don't know like, not offensive, and then they said that, and I was like, okay, that's fairly a fucking offensive, but okay. Yeah. So apparently, if a Native woman is assaulted by a non-Native person on tribal land, they will not be prosecuted because tribal police cannot prosecute a non-Native person. Can you not bring it up with, like, Canadian police unit? Well, okay, so this is the... Th- so 
I'm pretty sure this is an American thing, but I also thought it was a Canadian thing because I was, like, doing some research, and it turns out that Canada does have, like, these reservations that we force Native Americans on, like we do here. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I couldn't figure out if this was, like, also a true statement in Canada, but I also think it's important to add that it's a true statement in America. So basically, like, if... um. If you, as a non-native person, go onto the native land and you kill or commit a crime on that native land, you're technically not under the jurisdiction of the native police because you're not a native person. Oh, wait. I actually knew this because I read a book about it. Have you ever read the it's books? It's crazy. Um, oh, gosh. What's it called? Oh, The Roundhouse. The Roundhouse <laughs> by Louise Erdrich. That's what it was. Okay. Yeah, so the roundhouse, that's, and that's what the whole story is about, how this native woman gets raped, and it's all about um, this, her son, like, is trying to basically get retribution for her, I guess, um, but in the end, I'm pretty sure Oh, okay. that it ended up being, like, a non-native person that committed it, and so there was no recourse for justice. Anyways, sorry, that was, like, a wild... Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but at the same time, it, this is what's so fucked up about it, too. It's it's probably, like, a, I mean, I don't, I don't know much about Indigenous people, so I could totally yeah. be misspeaking, but just if I were to guess why, I would think that it's probably because once you kind of open the doors for those people, like, uh, whatever, non-Native governments to come in and start investigating and, like, getting involved I feel like that just based off of if you look at the history of the way indigenous and native peoples were treated I wouldn't be surprised that there are some kind of legislations probably internally that are like we don't want these other governments or foreign people coming in because it just gives them an opportunity to kind of swindle their way no but it's like the the tribal police can't prosecute because, like, they have their own police and, like, jurisdiction and justice thing on the reservation. So, like, they can't even prosecute a non-Native person. So, the, they can't prosecute a non-Native person and the police can't prosecute a crime that was committed on Native land. This is basically literally what it said in the article. But it said, however, if an Indigenous person is accused of killing a non-Native person on the reservation, they can be prosecuted twice, once by the tribal authorities and then once by the state of whichever state the crime was committed in. I thought they said that they couldn't prosecute on tribal land. No, 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 no. So that's, that's what I'm trying to explain to you. So, so like if X person is an Indigenous person and they're murdered on tribal land by a non-Indigenous person, then that non-Indigenous person can't be prosecuted at all. They get away with the crime. But if... By, but can't they, get, can't they be cro- prosecuted by the Canadian government? Yes or no? Who? Who? The person, like, if you went and killed an indigenous person on tribal land, the indigenous tribal land can't prosecute you, but the American government can? No. So then how can they prosecute? That's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to say. It's like, that's how it's, like, so oh fucked my up. God. Like, it's like, they, you can't have a book. That's like, so fucking annoying. I know. So, those with any information are asked to contact the RMCP serious tip line at plus one two oh four nine eight four six four four seven or the winnipeg police service at plus one two oh four nine eight six six two 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 and that's basically the only information we have i do though have to ask why did we just get into that whole like native non-native 
red tape conversation. Because I wanted to explain, like, kind of, like, why there's so many missing and murdered women who, like, go unprosecuted. But do they think, though, do they think that it was, is there, like, suspicion that it was a non-Native person that that killed her? There's literally no suspicion. Like, they don't, haven't released anything. anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is why I don't like these cases. So, yeah. That's it. I'm sad now. That was, like, really... I feel like people are going to be pissed. They're going to be like, that's... I mean, you should be pissed. Everyone should be mad that that's all the information that was released on the murder of an indigenous woman. Ready for the next one? This one's even shorter in the document, so I actually might have to throw my body off a cliff. Okay. This one is going to make you... I think this one's going to make you even matter. I mean, I guess. No, I actually think this is going to make you even matter. Okay. Ready? So, Roseanne Blackned was a 24-year-old woman from Namaska, which is a Cree community in northern Quebec, about 1,000 kilometers north of Montreal. And she was a mother of two young boys, and she was the eldest of nine siblings. So, she had been sexually assaulted, and she turned to drugs and alcohol to cope with this sexual assault. And while drunk one night, she walked into the house of her like sexual abuser and was waving a butcher knife and she was later arrested that night for that situation and she was she ended up being banished from her community so she like moved away so on november 6 1991 rose ann was with six people and a local bar closed and then an argument started and it became violent and a woman and an unnamed person beat roseanne her frozen body was found on november 16th nine days after she was last seen alive do you want to say this little French name? Yeah, wait, quick question. Did the woman beat her to death? Or was it just like... Just wait, okay, just wait. Sorry. You know I'm going to explain it. I know, but I'm impatient, okay. A man named Charles Letelier de Saint-Just. I don't know if I pronounced that right. That's how I would pronounce it. Whatever. The coroner. <laughs> that is a fancy fucking name for a coroner. I'm sure his parents, when they named him, were not like... And one day you are going to grow up and be a coroner. They probably said he's going to be like a politician. Yeah. Okay. Well, this guy, Charles, listed her death as November 7th, 1991. So if you'll remember, that is the night after or the day after she went to this bar and had that dispute. Which also could have been, we don't know like the timing, but that also could be like she died at like 12 a.m. on the 7th. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it could have been, like, they got out of the bar. She died right after the bar closed at midnight. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, so on November 19th, 1991, a... Can you say this word, please? It's literally just Lecco. Oh, okay. Lecco <laughs> newspaper reported that Roseanne was found lying in the fetal position with her hands covering her face, and her body was under a thin layer of snow, and she had suffered injuries to her head, collarbone, had a fractured rib, and swelling on her face. So the coroner, though, said that her injuries did not contribute to her death, but she actually died of hypothermia. So, like, they obviously contributed to her dying of hypothermia, but they weren't the cause of her death. Yeah. So her family claimed that the police did not do a thorough investigation when her body was found, and the case was originally handled by the some French thing, which is the city's disbanded... Handled by the... Yago. I, I don't know if there's supposed to be accents on this. I'm literally just making this up. I'm okay. going to say Sorité Municipale de Val d'Or, which is the city's disbanded police department. 
which was disbanded in 2002 after there was a, quote, overhaul, end quote, of police services. The case was handled by the Quebec Provincial Police, and they reignited the investigation in 2017. However, they closed it again with no arrest, and they literally know who that woman was, who beat her up. But they, they like, knew who she was the whole time? I don't know if they knew who she was the whole time, but in 2017, they definitely knew and didn't arrest anybody. Why didn't they just charge? That's, like, whatever. And so um, her family says that the police have been sharing little information about the case with them. And at the time, the the detective Daniel Hurada recommended charges against the woman and the second person. However, charges have charges have not been filed. Um, And so that's it. The police know who it is, but for some reason they won't do anything about it. I can't even comment. This is just ruining my day. And that's the end of that story. Okay, well, I guess let's just do this third one and hammer it home. So this third one's actually interesting because we actually have a lot more information about this third one because she was actually an internationally recognized artist. Whoa. And that's also really interesting that we have so much more information about her because she kind of like, what's the word? She kind of like... Integrated into non-Indigenous culture probably. Not integrated, no, that's, like, not the word I want to say, but it was, like, she kind of, like, served the non-Native community in a way because she was critically acclaimed for her art, so thus, they cared more about her case, which I think is pretty interesting if you think about it. Yeah. All right, so this is the case of Annie Paduguk, and again, I think that's how it's pronounced, but if I'm mispronouncing it, I'm really sorry. Annie was 47 years old, and she was an Inuk woman a mother of three living in Ottawa, Canada. She was born in 1969 to Napache and Igivudlu. Again, I'm really sorry if my pronunciation is off. And she grew up in Kinnegate, which is in Cape Dorset, Nunavut on Dorset Island, which is off the southern coast of Baffin Island. She was the seventh child in a family of ten. Shortly before she was born, her brother C and her sister Annie died in a house fire. I'm really not loving all the house fire <laughs> deaths that are happening. Um, that's terrible. And according to tradition, Annie was given her dead sister's name. Another one of her sisters died when Annie was three. She was swept away by a wave while playing close to the shore. What the fuck? They can't catch a break, this family. That's terrible. So... She traveled to a different area for high school because there wasn't a high school where she grew up, but it is not confirmed whether or not she graduated from high school. She was an internationally acclaimed artist and a third-generation artist, and her work mainly focused on post-colonialism in the art world. Oh, that's cool. Kinnegate, we should probably post a picture, actually, of her stuff. That'd be cool. Well, so most of this information, so so the beginning information about, like, her early life, I actually found because somebody made, so I guess there's, like, a website, and it basically, like, it, um, I'm trying to think. Okay, there's a website, and it's, like, a free website to look at Canadian artists' work, and somebody that she was close with created created a book about her life and all of her drawings. So that's how I found some information. And it's obviously going to be linked in the sources, but... Wait, I want to see her art. Wait, the picture of her, all of our listeners should go look at the picture of her. She is... You just want to give her a hug. She is so stinking cute. Wow. Okay, 
So continuing on, Kinnegate. I'm sorry, he's had the LBS. Well, we're almost done. We're almost done. One page. I'm not well. So Kinnegate has more artists per capita than any other place in Canada. That's cool. In mm-hmm. 2006, she had an exhibition at Toronto's Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery. And also that same year, she won $50,000 Sobery Art Award and participated in the 2007 edition of Documenta in Casal. So she was obviously critically acclaimed, a very talented artist, and had a lot of, a lot of successful awards in, in her past. Also, in 2007, that same year, she participated in the Documenta. She moved to Montreal, but she kind of struggled there, um, and she had a difficult time with substance abuse as well as intimate partner violence. Just a few months after her arrival in Montreal, she had used all of her money or gone through all of her money. In January 2008, She moved to Ottawa, and she was, again, still struggling with substance abuse, and her art reputation had died down, so she would try to just sell pieces on the street to get by. According to news.artnet.com, Annie had been living on the streets of Ottawa for several years. She had a longtime partner named William Watt, who it seems she was living with on and off. And they were also, like, in an on-and-off relationship, too. Yeah, so she was homeless, and then when she wasn't, when she wasn't with him, and then when they were together, I presume she would go move back in with him. Yeah, but I also don't even think that she, like, lived there that often, even if they were together. It mm. seems. Okay. On Monday, September 19th in 2016, just before 9 a.m., a city worker called 911 to report they had seen a body in the Redu River near Bordeaux Park. More specifically, King Edward Avenue, Cathcart, and Bruyere Street in Lowerton. Lower town. Lower town. I just pronounced all those wrong. I'm doing it again. Whatever. It's On me. Monday, September 19th, just 2016, just before 9 a.m., a city worker called 911 to report that they had seen a body in the Rideau River near Bordeaux Park. More specifically, King Edward Avenue, Cathcart, and Bruyere Street. I don't know how to pronounce that. In Lower Town. The body was later identified as being Annie's. The police did not assume this to be criminal. However, they ended up deciding that they needed to take a closer look at what happened, and now the homicide unit of the Ottawa Police Department is investigating her death. She had two autopsies done. However, her manner of death could not be determined, and it was unclear if she had drowned or if someone had tried to drown her. Watt, which is her her on-and-off-again boyfriend, said that she did not like water and couldn't swim. When they would go to a body of water, she would never go past her knees. Because her body was found in water, it's also really hard to obtain any DNA evidence that could be used to find her killer if she was killed. Her friends believe she was, quote, fleeing from him in fear the week before she disappeared, end quote. As in what? Okay, so she was fleeing from her boyfriend. Her brother, Paulus Joannesi, told ATPN, quote, her boyfriend keeps coming back for her, looking for her, always takes her to his place, and even she even told me he tore up her drawings sometimes, don't know why, end quote. Her friend Nancy Einelik corroborated this statement, saying, quote, she would always complain about the boyfriend being abused. She was afraid. Oh, the boyfriend was abused. No, she, like the girl, like Annie was abusive, but I, or abused, sorry, but I think that um, the woman just didn't say the right tense of the verb. Oh, okay. So 
our understanding of this is she's trying, this is a quote, so obviously we have to read it the way it was stated, but we, our understanding is more that Annie was being abused by Watt, not that Watt was abused by someone else. Okay. Um, Saituki Joemi, an Inuit community support worker who volunteers at an Ottawa drop-in center, said that Watt was actually banned from the center for allegedly attacking Annie there. Watt has said in multiple interviews that he would get upset with her about her drinking and he would always tell her to sober up and said maybe that and said maybe that was abuse. Oh, so Watt's trying to say that he was abused by her? No, no, no. So he's saying that like he was like I never abused her. I would always just tell her to stop drinking to sober up. Maybe she took that as an like as me being abusive towards her. Oh. But obviously there has to be a little bit more to that story. Yeah. Ew, fuck <laughs> off, Watt. Um However, Watt, I said, um, however, Watt says that she had periodic episodes where she would just disappear for a few days, but on that specific day, she had left her identification and she didn't leave a note. So the police after, or sorry, so after the police decided that they actually needed to consider all possibilities, they turned to surveillance and started looking for surveillance. There was an area... So there was uh, camera surveillance in the area where her body was found. However, the video view was obviously blocked by trees. And, of course, there were no witnesses. So, I mean, what else would we expect? (laughs) It's a surveillance camera. Like, what the fuck is the point of it? I know. A surveillance camera that literally is obstructed entirely from picking up any surveillance. Perfect. There's no point whatsoever. Although her friends seem to be suspicious of Watt, the police are not, and he is not considered a suspect in her death. The police only interviewed him for five to ten minutes, so we're not quite sure how they vetted him that quickly. I don't think you can get any information out of anyone in five to ten minutes. No. Okay. And is Watt, to clarify, Watt, is, is he like a white... Canadian man or is I was just thinking that but I actually don't know I never saw a picture of him I'm gonna google okay. it you do some some search on that I'll- yep he's white or wait I don't know wait hold up oh no that's her brother wait no sorry that's her brother I like saw this man and I was like wait a second that's okay so he's white William Watt is white okay so yeah that's I mean there is the confusion cleared up so so he is white okay So William Watt, I mean, sounds like a white name. William Watt is white. And so that could perhaps explain why the police were a little bit, how do I put this? Showing white privilege. Lazy? Yeah. Perhaps. In conducting, yeah, just didn't give a shit. Um, But they didn't clearly vet him well enough because five to ten minutes is just objectively not enough time that's like five to ten minutes is you being like hi how are you yeah let me do you want a cup of coffee yeah thanks for coming into the station my name is detective blank i've been with the force for this many years we're investigating the death of annie you dated her right yeah oh how long did you date oh fuck five minutes time's up well thanks for telling me about that have a great one exactly are you kidding i know i know Okay. Yep. A week before she was found dead, she, quote, checked in, end quote, 
to the Shepherds of Good Hope, which is a homeless shelter in downtown Ottawa, and she was found just a few blocks away from the shelter. Watt said that something happened in downtown Ottawa about eight months before she was found dead that scared her so much she didn't go down there again until her death. Is there anything to corroborate or back that story? No one else had heard her say that? No. Okay, well. Just him. Joemi said that he is upset with the way the Ottawa police handled both her death and the subsequent investigation, especially because they claimed that there was no foul play involved, which obviously this whole case is a little suspect. Joemi's point is like a good segue into what I'm going to talk about next and what I'm going to tell you. So the detective who was responsible for processing the scene and identifying Annie posted racist comments about her death on Facebook. Sergeant Chris... Her chair posted in the comment section of an Ottawa citizen story that her death could, or sorry, her death, quote, could be a suicide accidental. She got drunk and fell in the river and drowned. Who knows? Then in another post, he wrote, quote, much of the aboriginal population in Canada is just satisfied being alcohol or drug abusers, end quote. He was then demoted to constable for three months and was required to go through sensitivity training. In November 2016, he bleeded guilt. Thank God he was demoted. I know. Well, and then, so in November 2016, he was, he pled guilty. I was wrote he pleaded. He pled guilty to two counts of discreditable conduct under the Police Services Act. He was charged with knowingly using racist comments and another charge was commenting about an ongoing slash open investigation. That's, so, basically after... <sighs> Did they not think, like, oh, maybe we should actually reopen this investigation considering the fact that the main detective on the case was a racist fucking bastard who probably didn't... He probably saw the Process it, right? He just... Oh, my God. He literally just is... So he completely fucked up the investigation. Because he literally probably just was like, oh, based off of my incorrect racist stereotype preconceived notions of indigenous peoples she must have drowned because she was drunk yeah oh really i bet fucking sergeant chris Hernchair is as much of a fucking alcohol abuser as anyone else fucking asshole i mean i think you have to drink a sufficient amount to not hate yourself if you are being so incredibly racist and letting the life of a woman be completely just written off. But let's talk about this for a second. He was required to go through sensitivity training after he posted these comments. What about before? Do you not think that as a police officer you should be going through sensitivity training before you get on the force? If you're required to process scenes? Yeah, I mean, that's... This... uh, I'm angry. (laughs) This whole thing just made me angry. I know. It's ridiculous. Well, now I'm kind of storming at you for making me read this and know about it. Oh, my God. Rude. I didn't get stormy at you the other week. This just ruined my day. I'm kidding. I'm not stormy at you. I thought you were about to cry, and I was like, can you not? Oh, no. <laughs> I just sniffled. Got a little bit of a runny nose. Corona. Well, you're, I mean, you're in Houston. It's not the hot spot anymore. It's stigmatized. Did you see all those CNN articles about the um, evictions that are happening in Houston? No, but I know that they're coming because the economy. It's hard because Houston's so based on oil that, like, 
when the economy gets hit, Houston gets like double hit because all of the oil, the just it's like the whole city basically shuts down. Okay. So if you have any information about the case, you are encouraged to call the Ottawa Major Crimes Unit at 613-236-1222. Okay. So now, of course, we're going to go into some statistics because I always feel like they're important for you to know when you hear this case. Between 2000 and 2008, Aboriginal girls and women represented 10% of all female homicides in Canada. 55% of these cases involved women under the age of 31 and 17 of the girls being 18 or younger. 17%. Yeah, sorry, 17% of the girls being 18 or younger. And 88% of these women were mothers. Only 53% of murdered cases of aborigines, is that, or? I think it's aboriginal woman. Okay, aboriginal woman, the murderer was charged. A leaked landmark government report has concluded that the high rate of missing and murdered indigenous women constitute as a, quote, Canadian genocide, end quote. A report by National Inquiry into murdered and missing indigenous women and girls stated that, quote, state actions and inactions rooted in colonialism and colonial ideologies were a key driving force in the disappearance of thousands of indigenous women. Um, there, the number of indigenous women who have gone missing, missing is estimated to be 4,000, but there's no definite number. That's kind of crazy that the government is recognizing it as, like, naming it a genocide. I know. But I guess they won't say it publicly, I think, is what I understood from this. I mean, I get that. I get that. But Okay, so if you or someone you know is struggling with substance abuse or has been a victim of sexual assault or domestic violence, there are helplines that are available 24-7 if you need an advocate. The substance abuse hotline is 1-800-662-4357. The sexual assault hotline is... 1-800-656-4673. And the lastly, the domestic violence hotline is 1-800-799-7233. And these are also American hotlines. But, yeah. Cool. Well, I want to say something positive, but that just really... Ruined it. Made me sad. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to note, though, that the reason these people, these minority groups aren't being covered is because it's all controlled. Like what is produced in in the media is all controlled by profits. So for everyone listening to this, I think just keep in mind that if we want to change the outcomes of these people and future indigenous or minority people that aren't getting equal treatment or equal the, I guess the, adequate investigations or resources that are deserved in investigating their cases, that is entirely up to us to change. And if we just start demanding from the media that they give it more attention to these women, and then I, I really do think that the rest will follow. Like, it'll just be – I said that so poorly, so maybe you want to say – But hey. also, too, if we, like, start demanding that non-Native people who m- commit crimes on Native land are, can actually be prosecuted by the government of the land that they committed these crimes on, then we would definitely see a lot better change. But the United States government probably isn't going to do that because we love our white supremacy here. <laughs> love it. I'm in a bad mood now. 
We, we're going to have to post a picture of this woman because she is just like the most scrumptious little. Well, I mean, on Instagram, I'm going to be posting pictures art. of the people. I guess we should probably create like a like a website, but I don't know how to do that. So, Thank you guys for tuning in again this week. We really hope that you are enjoying our podcast so far. If you have any recommendations for how we could make it better, please let us know. Just shoot us a DM. We're always looking to improve, um, and we are just learning as we go. So there's a lot of room for improvement, and it is a steep learning curve. Um, But with all that being said, we're so happy for the support that you guys have given us, and we hope to see you next week. Kate, do you want to give them a little, what are we talking about next week? Yeah, I was just, I was like, don't fucking stop recording. Um, Next week, we're actually going to do a really interesting case. Um, the Atlanta child murders, which I feel like is an absolute insane case that I feel like not a lot of people really know about it. I mean, I definitely didn't until I watched Mindhunter. Yeah, wait, I don't know about that. Yeah, and it's crazy. And actually, so one of my favorite podcasts is like a documentary thing, True Come Obsessed, Love You, Jillian and Patrick. But they did, they just recently did the Investigation Discovery documentary on the Atlanta, Atlanta child murders. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't know Investigation Discovery had that. So... Getting my information from that, but also um, it's a really interesting case, so, and it's really fucked up, so stay tuned for that next week. It's probably going to have to be in, like, multiple different episodes, but. Oh, that's fine. Alrighty, well, thanks again, guys, and we will see you next week. This has been Big Girls Don't Crime with Kate and Sophie.